and and you know if you're watching it'll be like 25 second delay All right, I think we are live. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Lunchtime Conversation. I'm gonna give you an opportunity to share, encourage you to share, and an opportunity to share this before we dive in. I am so excited that I have April Dinwoody with me today, and she's an amazing person, and has an amazing body of work that she's done. And uh, we're gonna get into some real uh, candid conversation as well as um, really healthy conversation about transracial adoption. So before we really, really get started, I'm gonna ask, take a moment and share this feed. I'm gonna take a moment, I'm gonna share it, but um, those of you that are joining us right now, go ahead and um, share this feed. And April, if you don't mind, you can share it on your post as well. And we like to welcome you. And so again, welcome, welcome, welcome. Let's go. This is exciting. Boom. All right. I've shared mine. Cool. I'm going to do the same. Thank you so much. Again, welcome, everyone. Uh, I'm Donald Johnson. I have the humbling honor to serve as the lead pastor for Life Church Auburn Hills. And Life Church Auburn Hills, we're this multicultural community that is being empowered and transformed by God's grace, truth, and love. And uh, we love having these uh, opportunities to really have a conversation, um, to, to dialogue, to converse. Uh, this is an opportunity because uh, as we know, social media, I think has made us experts at commenting, but not really conversing. And so we're shouting at each other, shouting over each other, and no one's listening. So what this, um, this opportunity that we have is to facilitate, again, conversation. And today, again, I have April Dinwoody with us, and I'm excited because I, we met some years ago, and when I got a chance to know who she was and the work that she was involved in, I immediately said, April, we, we got to have some type of session where you know, there's people that I love, people that I know that have adopted children um, transracially, what is known as transracial adoption. And oh man, the information that you shared is so empowering. And so the whole objective for this conversation today is to facilitate a candid and healthy conversation again about transracial adoption from April's um, personal and, and professional perspective. And what we want to do is provide you, the audience, with information and tools to support your children and families in the formation of their cultural identities and, and much more. So I am going to read this bio and we're going we're gonna to dive in uh, our friend April. April is a transracially adopted person, a nationally recognized thought leader on non-traditional and multiracial families. She is a former chief executive of the Donaldson Adoption Institute. 
the founder of Adoptment, which is a mentoring program that matches foster youth with adopted adults. And she hosts Born in June, Raised in April, What Adoption Can Teach the World, which is a podcast about adoption, identity, and family. She is an inclusion and diversity expert, and April works with families, corporations, nonprofit organizations, schools, and other government agencies to support healthy identity development of all children and young people. So I welcome you, April. Welcome to Lunchtime Conversations with Life Church Auburn Hills. Thank, Thank you, you so much for being here. It's my pleasure. It's an honor, actually. So glad to do this. Finally, we've been thinking about this for a long time. Yes, yes. So April, um, I read your, your professional bio. Can you share with us who you are personally? Just give us a little background on where you live, some interesting facts about yourself. And uh, yeah, let's, let's start there. Sure. Yeah, happy to. Um, yeah, uh, born in Boston, uh, adopted into Rhode Island, uh, born to a white mom that was uh, single, uh, unmarried, had three children that were born to her already. Uh, and that she was caring for. And um, my parents wanted to have another child enter their family. They had three children already. They wanted two boys and two girls. And they uh, decided that race wasn't really an issue for them. Uh, they were white and are still white and as their children are as well. And um, didn't really give too much of a thought to having differences of race in our family. And I joined the family at about six months, seven months old, and then was adopted into the family uh, you know, by, by the age of two, I think. So I spent the better part of my young life to 17 in Rhode Island, a very white community, and um, then moved on to New York and uh, college and uh, New York City for work. And that's where I've been pretty much ever since, have been spending a lot more time here in Rhode Island of late, uh, which is very interesting and very different from Harlem to now. Have a long career in marketing communications, but having this experience of transracial adoption, it wasn't if it was when I'd be doing more work solely dedicated to that, my mentoring program, the work I do with schools. Uh, so all the things, but I'm also an athlete, you know, I consider myself a, an athlete. I do a lot of, uh, of workouts and my own little concoctions of, of mixes of yoga and all the things. Um, so definitely that part of my life is very important and spirituality as well. Cool, 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 cool. Again, we're having, this is our lunchtime conversation. Thank you for sharing, April. A lunchtime conversation with April Dinwoody, and this is regarding transracial adoption. Very um, important topic, dear to my heart. Uh, thank you so much for sharing that. In fact, when you mentioned uh, that being an athlete, that you are. I, I watched um, one of your videos, you were doing yoga, and I got inspired. You were doing a uh, forearm stand, and I said, I can do that. And um, yeah, not knowing that it was like an advanced move, I guess, in, in yoga. And so I did attempt it, and I had my daughters who were the ones to help me get my legs up. <laughs> they helped me get my legs up. And for probably 0.5 seconds, I was standing before I tumbled and almost wrecked the entire liver rope. Um, so it was an interesting experience for me. And so, uh, but thank you. <laughs> thank you, April, for uh, well, inspiring. <laughs> listen, you know, what, what um, 
Don Earl, what's, what's, a, what's a parallel to that for, as part of this conversation is a lot of those advanced moves in yoga take practice, right? It takes a long time to find your balance, to build the muscles that you didn't know were there, to hold the move. There are many times where I've fallen out of those moves and learned over years. It correlates to this idea of navigating differences of race, class, and culture, mm, right? Um, we good. can't just go up into a perfect forearm stand before we've done any type of work or practice. You know, it takes 10,000 hours they say, right, to be an expert in something. And when we're thinking about navigating these things that are at such a high level and a high degree of, of, of difficulty, mm-hmm. we, and we don't have the hours of practice uh, that have been embedded and, and dedicated to this thing we're trying to do, we're, we're going to fall and the room mm. might crash down around us. So wow. I think that's the, that's the sort of a spirit and a theme of this conversation. It's like, how practiced are we at the toughest parts of our lives today, which very much are about differences of race, class and culture, family structure. And um, so this very conversation is part of that practice for folks who may be listening, right? So that's the hope I have for this Ooh. time. Well, you can drop the mic. <laughs> that's a powerful parallel i did not know i was setting that up for for that but it's a powerful parallel and as we transition into the conversation you know um, i have like 11 years working at spalding for children in uh, southville and i learned so much i did not know how tied and connected this was to my family i knew my mother was in foster care and, and pretty much all her um siblings were in foster care and at one point different um, homes and um, I I didn't really know the backstory of like uh, adoption and and foster care until I started working there. During my time you know I heard that um, that Moses was used as a biblical example of a foster or, or adoption and which is a powerful story and I was just, I and mean, this this happened just recently. When I looked at the story of Moses, and as it relates to this conversation, Moses was in a, a cross-cultural adoption, if you will, um, adopted again by um, Egyptian uh, Pharaoh's daughter, and he being a Hebrew. And there was something that was very important that I saw in them that I've never saw before, April, that when that adoption happened, as those that know the story, uh, Moses' mother put him in a basket, you know, after his three months and put him in a basket because it was this edict to kill all the Hebrew men, put him in his basket. Pharaoh's daughter saw Moses and it was Miriam's sister or, or Moses' sister, Miriam, who was standing by watching. And when she saw that happen, um, she went to Pharaoh's daughter and she asked this question. She's like, do you want me to um, get uh, a Hebrew to raise him? Because Pharaoh's daughter knew that she was not, that, that he was not, that he was a Hebrew. And, and, and so again, his sister Miriam intervened and, and spoke up and basically connected him with his culture. I've never, ever seen that before until I was preparing for this. Mm. And just to show you how important, I, and I think, I mean, that's a real subtle um, insight, but it's so powerful. Moses knew who he was. He knew he was a Hebrew because of that connection. 
That's right. That's Other than right. that, he would have been devoid of any understanding of his identity. And then there's other passages that we don't have to get into because I want to get into talking to you. Well, <laughs> that talk about the faith that um, Moses took, recognizing who he was and not to not to basically enjoy the pleasures of Egypt, the pleasures of sin for a moment because he was connected to his culture. He knew who he was. So yeah, and, and Moses so name. I mean, go ahead. I'm sorry. So it's just so important. Yeah. Yeah. Mo saying, yeah, Mo Moses' name means to draw out. And I think this is the thing. Sometimes people draw out out of a, a bad situation. They draw their children out of a situation, you know, either there's neglect or there's abuse. And so they draw out. But that doesn't mean that you have rescued them from their culture, their identity. So I just think that's a really, really important point. So, yeah, absolutely. It's critically important. And it's one to, 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 also guide us in as much as um, how to how to how to sit with some of that for a second mm -hmm. and and really think about what that means to just even just fully acknowledge the fact that all adoption all adoption is transcultural mm -hmm. because there are no two family cultures that are exactly the same. Now that doesn't mean there can there there have to be barriers to an expansive you know, family experience and, and, and that people can't, can't move within that expansive way. Um, but it, 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 it needs to be said that even without the obvious uh, sort of cultural and racial differences, that is true. And um, how do we then from that place, look at all the ways that parents and professionals can be very much in service to that idea, um, mm -hmm. which is ultimately in service to what what adoption and foster care really is, which is the best interest of children, the children. not yeah. the competing interests of adults, right? That's good. All right, so let's let's dive in a little further. You have a podcast called Born in June, Raised in April. Can you tell us about that name and about your podcast? Sure. Uh, so I was adopted into the Dinwiddie family. The Dinwiddie family, my parents, um, wanted a girl. They liked the name April Elizabeth. That's what they decided to name me. There were some other names that will go left unsaid that were on the table <laughs> that I'm so glad they did not choose. Uh, I'm glad I'm April. Uh, and the many years into my search for my family of origin, my birth family, I discovered that I was named June Elizabeth at birth by my mother of origin. Mm. And the name June held significance in my family of origin. It was my birth mother, Helen's middle name. She was Helen June. My maternal grandmother's name was June. They called her Junebug. And then mm. my maternal niece, um, my half-sister, Debbie's daughter, is also named June. So that name had significance in the family that I was born into, which was quite grounding for me as a person, even to find that as a grown-up, um, that I had a name that was given to me that had significance in the family. Those are some of the bittersweet moments in our life experiences through adoption, because some folks I know were not named, or if they were named, they didn't know the name. And so that's a very grounding thing. But the irony of being born one name and then being adopted into another name, um, and by the way, I'm not... I'm not born in either one of those months. I'm not born in June and I'm not born in April. Of course, I'm born in October. So, but I like to do math or I, 
I sort of like to do simple math, I guess I would say, which is the fourth month April plus the sixth month June equals the 10th month October. So if you believe in any type of numerology and things <laughs> adding up, you know, four plus six equals a perfect 10. And of course, that is sort of how I look at it. That said, I use the calendar as a, as a, uh, as a grounding tool and a metaphor for all the work I do around cultural competency, taking one month at a time and really deconstructing how you can be in better conversation about adoption and family structure plus differences of race, class, and culture within that construct that everybody can sort of identify with, which is the calendar, right? Like we all know when mm -hmm. things are coming. So it's, and the calendar is quite, you know, as you probably well know, quite a grounding spiritual tool and mm -hmm. has been for, yeah. for, for, from the onset of the calendar, which was gathering around, you know, sort of you know, religious events were really part of the calendar. So I, I like to bring back that, that holding of the calendar and help people sort of navigate through the different days in the months and the weeks of the year. Cool. Cool. All right. Can you? So the, share... so the podcast basically follows that narrative. So every month there's a different there's a different um, there's a different uh, theme and a different guest. And um, early on, I just did my narrative, and then now I have uh, guests that come on. So anyway, yeah, that's the Born in June, Raised in April podcast. Sorry about that. No, no problem. No, no, no. I like that. I did did not know, and that I, I like that six plus four is ten. That's um, pretty sweet. Uh, can you share with us your backstory? And when, I, when I'm talking about your backstory, is your family of origin and then your family of experience. Because again, we have friends who have adopted um, transracially. And, and for the record, because people have heard me talk about uh, race. Um, and for the record, we always say there's one race, um, that's the human race. And for the sake of the conversation, um, what is known as transracial adoption. Uh, can you share again your family of origin and then your family of experience, your back, your backstory? Just, just, just let us let us know. Yeah. Well, a dear friend of mine um, who was also adopted, um, Daryl McDaniel's DMC of Run DMC, always says um, he didn't find out he was adopted until he was 35. By the way, so definitely look up that story because it's a good one for all of us wow. to recognize and internalize. Um, you can't start a book a chapter two. Right. You have to start right. chapter one. And I yes. say, you're not, your life does not begin when you're adopted, but when you're born mm. um, and your life is made bigger and different uh, at through adoption, but it's not the starting point of your life. It's the continuation of your life. So um, as I mentioned, Helen June, my mother of origin uh, was a single mom, um, had three children she was raising in Newport, Rhode Island. And um, I, I was never able to actually really converse with her or have a connection to her before she passed away. She was very, actually a little bit easier than I thought she would be to find, but harder to make a connection with. When you mm -hmm. have these disconnections, I think the, the very difficult part of adoption is the, the loss, the factor of loss. And so much of what we haven't done um, in the work in adoption is to acknowledge some of those losses. And so Helen really was not holding this experience in a healthy way, which wasn't, she was not able to receive me as a grown-up in, in, in a healthy way. And in, in, in a way that I was sort of hopeful to be received as the narrative went, um, you were so loved, Helen loved you so much, your birth mother loved you so much that she made an adoption plan for you. Side note, that, that gives you a very complicated relationship to love and what love is. If someone loves you, they leave you, right? So that's over right. here. That's for, wow. that's for the Valentine's Day podcast. But right. so, you know, in, in coming back into her life as a grown up, I thought, well, she loved me. She'll be happy to see that I'm, 
well and had a great family and all the things she wanted for me, I'm here to, to show her that. And it didn't work out in that way. So I don't know very much about what was, what was happening in her life at the time. No one knew that she was pregnant with me. I think, mm -hmm. I think maybe only her mother, my maternal grandmother, Junebug knew and, and Junebug uh, left the planet before Helen did. So there's a very few pieces I can put together in terms of what was really happening at that point. Um, I had siblings that were older that did not know she was pregnant. Her siblings, her, her brothers who knew her, who were still alive at the time, um, did not know. Good friends that I met did not know. So I don't know much about her. I've learned through some storytelling and some narrative around who she was, um, which gives me a lot of joy. I mean, it was a very painful experience not to be able to be reconnected to her, but I do get a lot of joy and understanding around people telling me about her. I don't know much about, therefore, I don't know much about my father of origin. Um, and Helen was white. Helen was white, Irish, English, um, European. Uh, so she shared with me that one thing she did share with me um, in a letter was that um, an act of, of criminal violence was how I was conceived. So that was also a lot to process. And so she would not tell me anything more about my father of origin. So um, an adoption plan was made for me. I went into temporary foster care while Helen decided what she was going to do. That's when the Dinwiddies got the phone call, there's a girl for you. She may be biracial, which was very interesting because I look <laughs> very much the same color as I am now as I was then. So I was definitely biracial, not maybe. And so my parents were like, cool, we, you know, we can love any baby. We want a girl. This is how this is going to make our family complete. So I was fostered for a while, then came into that family as a foster to adopt placement, and then was adopted by that family. They were high school sweethearts. They met in 4-H. They were married for several years before they had their first child. They had two children pretty much right away, then another after about three years, and then they adopted me. Um, and re really embraced me into the family you know, as, as their child and, um, and treated me don't, no different than my siblings, my white siblings, which was complicated, right? It was complicated in terms of we were different. My skin was different. My hair was different. Um, I was seen as different outside of the family. Even in the family, there were some relatives that weren't super happy about a brown or black person enjoy and joining the family. Certain things that happened throughout my life, which, which were not um, things that we were prepared for, quite frankly. And uh, and then made for some very difficult life experiences in a very small white New England town. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, April. How, can you share with us how the difference between your cultural experience and racial experience, um, how, can you, can you share what's the difference between that for, for those that are, are listening? You had a cultural experience and also your racial experience. Sure. So when I, when I think of culture and I explain culture, the way that I internalized culture as a, as a young person, as a child growing up was, you know, we don't know from culture as kids, right? We just know what our family is and we know what our family does. And our family did things that were very white. And they're not bad things, right? We watched Tiha, we, we listened to John Denver. We had a farm that we raised our own, you know, our own product um, and things. And that's not just a white thing, right? right? And I'm sure that there were people of color that were watching those programs as well, you know, but, but, and, and my mom's Italian, my dad's Scottish and English, but we, we really didn't wave any of those flags, right? We, we, we almost, we were just, we were, we were our own culture almost as the Dinwiddie family, which 
in a lot of ways is why I'm grounded in, in this idea that, that uh, culture um, can be this big thing, but also it can be a very small thing that then allows you to be expansive in your own right. So while we weren't expansive to a degree, there are a couple things that are really important. Um, in, in my high school years, my, sister, my brother married um, a woman from Japan. And so I did see my family embrace a different culture. I saw them really um, leaning into Japanese culture in a way to learn from this new member of our family and to sort of, it, it was something that they were interested in and it's something that really expanded and enriched all of our lives. So that's a very inter interesting juxtaposition to you know, not doing some culturally expansive things in my growing up years. Um, and that again, it's not, anytime I mention anything that is, that may come across as complicated or um, um, even some ways, you know, people would say, well, like, I can't believe you talk about your family so openly and the things that are hard and didn't work. You know, I, I think like all, all, all people are my family and all, all, you know, anybody I coach or do work with and all parents are my parents. So I, I, I love them. I, I, I respect them. Um, and I also hold them accountable, you know, on some level. And I can name these certain things in such a way because they actually, I am their daughter. And, and there is such a deep bond and love there that it's hard sometimes to, to say certain things and to point out certain things. But at the same time, it, it's, it's how I'm designed and programmed. And I never once felt like I couldn't um, really be who I wanted and needed to be. I never saw a white person in the mirror. I never wanted to be white. I loved my white family, but I didn't, I knew that there was something about me that was very grounded in being black and biracial. And it was hard for me to get those things. I had to go after them myself, but I never felt like my family really forced me to, um, you know, to choose. Now, do they understand the black experience? Not necessarily. Um, do they try? Sure, I think some do. Um, others don't and and that's okay too right so it, it um it's 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 very intricate um these experiences of differences of race and culture now race was actually a little bit easier right on some level mm -hmm. easier to name easier to say oh i know how it feels when that teacher did that or i know how it feels when someone called me the n-word i know how it feels to um be the only black or brown person in most of the settings I was in, which is why I upped up the boogie and went to Harlem as soon as I could, right? Once I understood what Harlem was, right, like that was where I needed to be. I needed to be around black people, like full stop. Like it was very clear that that's where I needed to be. Cool. What, what are some things, um, let's talk about your, your family of experience. What are some things that they did well and then I want you to talk about some things that you wish that they actually knew. And um, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at, at that yeah. and then I'll follow up. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to what I was saying before. I mean, my family is really sort of hardcore New England, very much rooted in community, very much rooted in love, very much rooted in like um, providing this like container of of goodness. I mean, that's from food to um, time together. That's 
it's it's very unique. We we all kind of live close to each other, and 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 it that doesn't make life uncomplicated. It just means that there's a special kind of bond that we share um, as a as like a, this 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 foundation. Um, so I think my parents gave me a great church community, right? They gave me a great community, great church community, um, one that I'm still a part of today. Um, they, you know, gave us enough leeway in our development. So we, we, they told us right and wrong, but it was kind of up to us. So there's a lot of independence, I think, that I gained from my parents' way of parenting. Now, that doesn't mean that sometimes I you know, probably could have used a little bit more reeling in. I mean, that's just life. But my parents were very, very clear. Right, here's right and wrong. Here's what we expect from you. And you either did it or you didn't, right? Um, so there's that. And, and, and there, was just, uh, there was just a lot of love. Um, um, so I think that's kind of the baseline of what... I, I, I really felt that my parents did, did really well. Um, and I think for the things that they could have done better, I mean, I think every kid could go and say, my parents should have done this, should have done that. I mean, we, we blame our parents for everything, right? Um, but in, in the case of transracial adoption, there was, especially in the early 70s through the 80s in terms of just not really being aware and then also not really having the tools. I mean, there was no website you could go to and look right. up how to do cornrows. There was no mm. um, no black hair care section in our local pharmacy. Right. Uh, I, I was using Pert and Prell and Breck, whatever is in the shower. And I was washing my hair like every day. And it was like, you know, when I finally got to Harlem and, and started having, you know, black women help me with my hair, they were like, you wash your hair every day. Are you crazy? Like, I was like, oh, well, you know, and, and, you know, so I, so I learned some of these things late. So I think the, you know, hair, and I always joke, my mom's like, oh, I wish I could have done better. And, and, and that's, and that's real. I mean, look, I've also had some like some really tender and um, meaningful and sometimes really hard moments with my mom, especially like, you know, no kid, at least I don't, ever want my mom to feel bad about how she parented me. I mean, right. it's almost, it, it hurts me to think that that would hurt her. And right. yet I know some of the things I share help parents today. So it's kind of this like, this delicate balance. And, you know, there's, I don't think there's anybody on the planet I love more than my mom. Mm. And I, I, and just when I think I can't love her more, she'll say, you know, April, man, I wish I, I wish I knew that. Like, I wish I could have done that better. And that's for a parent to do at any point in their in the life cycle of their parenting yes. is pretty darn transformational. And my dad too, my dad will say, well, what could we have done better? I mean, those, those things are transformational. So I, I wish that they would have talked more openly about adoption. And I wish that we had a, a better sort of, um, you know, sense of skill and practice around some of the things that would have um, helped me around hair and skin and, and just, just understanding, you know, what it, what it might be like to be out in the world and be so visible um, mm. in this white community. Um, yeah, so those are the things. Yeah, so, so really kind of, again, like you said, awareness and um, the hair, which is important because it's, it's, it's an issue of identity. And so for those of you that are just joining us, uh, we are talking with um, April Dinwiddie and um, in regards to transracial adoption. 
and sharing her personal experience. Uh, in a moment, we're going to transition to like application, uh, a way to both engage and respond. Uh, let me ask you this, April, what impact did your experience have on your identity? Uh, can you can you discuss that piece? Well, you know, family is in time with family in your early years and throughout your life really impacts your identity greatly. So I think the other thing that my family just embodies is a, a, a high degree of strength, right? Strength, mm -hmm. physical strength and emotional strength. Mm -hmm. um, so my part of my identity is, is a strong woman. Yeah. Um, a strong member of a family, you know, this, just being, being a, um, someone you can count on, right. Um, even, even just transactionally, someone you can count on. I think that I draw a lot of that strength in my identity from my family. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, I think because my family didn't make me white mm -hmm. and didn't, but didn't also sort of recognize the blackness and the, and the black culture, I, I had every opportunity to sort of own my identity, right? Like, and, and kind of build that however I, I wanted to. Once I became aware of some of the things that I could do to build my own identity, I went right after them. And, and, and quite frankly, my family at a young age could have, when I moved as a young adult to New York, um, could have been like, oh, we're, we're not coming to Harlem. That's not what we're doing. I mean, my family was like, they, like they were on the block from day one. You know, they right. came and they were part of my life in Harlem. Uh, my nieces and nephews, my extended family, like, so they, they were, you know, supportive of anything that I did really. And so my identity has, been my identity development has been complicated but but it was never um taken away from me things of my identity were never really sort of taken away in terms of you can't be that or you can't do that um that never really felt like i could um oh goodness sorry i don't know what's happening there but we'll keep we'll keep going hopefully that doesn't isn't too distracting um so at the end of the day i feel like um so that was so that was a big piece of my identity development was like New England strength and all the things. I I then really became part of the Harlem community and and mm -hmm. New York really moving to New York was like oh wow I can really be anything and right. I can have access to culture I can have access to food I can have access to black people um, that I didn't have access to before even just vis visually you know just visibly seeing more black people than white people on a regular basis was like profound. You know, I just didn't see that many black people in my existence up until 17 years old. So, you know, identity development has a, a, a lot of things create your healthy identity. And what I would say is this, is that, you know, there's a long tail in identity development. We have a core of who we are, and then we have all these things that can shift our identity at any point. We become a parent if we change jobs if we you know um change locations all these things impact who we are and how we move in the world yeah thank you april i have a, a friend who is asian and he just recently shared with me um how his mother um, grew up in a um, transracial uh, she's a transracial adoptee and it was unfortunate that her adopting, adoptive parents pushed her away from her culture. Um, 
they, they, there was no connection at all. And in fact, it was somewhat intentionally um, mentioned um, or, or not encouraged that you should embrace this culture. And, you know, as a result, to this day, he struggles with his own people, um, identifying with his, with his own people, you know, because the narrative, the context for him was Asians was weird. And so he wanted to separate himself from his Asian identity. Uh, and that's, I mean, it's unfortunate, but this is something that, that happens um, in uh, the transracial adoption. And I mean, this was just, just recent and current for, for him that he struggles with. And yeah. Um, yeah, what do you, what would you, how would you respond well, to? That's, you know, that's real. I mean, I think one of the things that is, I'm seeing happen today is a, a sort of a shift in engagement of young people who are, have been adopted, especially those that have adopted, been adopted transracially through some of the affinity groups that I do in schools. There's an, a different kind of agency that younger people are having that say, hey, mom, dad, this isn't working for me. I need you to do more. And then there are resources, some people like me and others like me that say, let me help. Right. Let, let me help you, because the only way to help a child that's entrusted to you with their healthy identity development is if you're doing your work of healthy identity development. Yes. And when there are differences of race that are present, um, you have to do that work. Um, you have to do that work uh, initially separate from your kid. Mm. Um, this is work that you have to do. I mean, I, I talk a lot about um, privileged personal operating systems, you know, mm. folks who um, are just in the flow of moving through the world white and um, don't really have a reason to necessarily look at some of the things that they do, opening something before they purchase it, um, um, not getting a receipt or not getting a bag when they leave a store with a product in their hands, driving, you know, um, you know, so many things that as a person of color, that we have to be precise about our movements. It's like, it, I, I, help, I help so many people sort of do a personal assessment, um, even of the cultural intake and the consumption, you know, what's on your bookshelf, what's in your pantry, what's in the bathroom, what's uh, on, recently watched on Netflix. If you have a kid of another race and you're, you're recently watched on Netflix or Disney Plus or all the things, is, is predominantly white cultural elements We've got a we've got a serious problem, right? Like you 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 have to internalize and intake things, and your kid needs to see you sort of taking in this thing, not because of them or with them only, but like because you love that. Mm. You know, there's a story of a, of a mom who says she's white and she adopted a a, um, a, a child, uh, a black child, and she was raising her and raising her in a predominantly white community and saying she finally found an integrated school for her and that there were black kids in the school and she was so excited and um but she was heartbroken that her daughter continued to want to play with the white girls she's like april i don't know what else to do and i asked her a very simple question do you have black friends mm. does your daughter see you loving black people do you have black people into your home for dinner or for meals um and the mom just kind of looked at me and i i was like your daughter's going to do what you do mm. and it doesn't mean you can't have white friends. It just right. means that your kid not, sort of needs to believe you authentically that you love other cultures, especially the culture that and the race that they identify with because it won't pass the smell test and we'll know. And then when you put the work on a kid, 
Right. Kids don't know how to do that stuff. And, and to send them to a culture camp or to send them to an African dance class, you should go to the Afri African dance class with your kid. You know, um, yeah. I, you know, at certain points, it does make sense for kids to do things on their own. But right. um, parents have to reset their operating systems and really assess the things. It's not just about reading, you know, the anti-racist books. You know, I have them all over the place. It's not just doing that work. That's important work. But it's also the real, the cultural elements that are everyday life things that you do, like really taking a, a close look at those things will help you shift, I think, right? Yeah, no, that's so good. And, and for me, I, I think that's the beauty of a, a multicultural, multi-ethnic community of faith is because you see people that are that are different. And we have at Life Church Auburn Hills, we have this idea we call 3C friendships, which are committed um, because it takes commitment when you're when you're dealing with just humanity <laughs> itself, because it, things are get difficult and hard. We talk about being cross-cultural, those are vital elements. And then the other part is being Christ-centered, because we want to keep, you know, for us Christ at the center of everything that we do. And so we, we're, we're pushing for that. And we do have families that um, because of the intentionality and in the community that we have, families that have adopted um, transracially are a part of Life Church Auburn Hills. And it is, it is a, it's amazing because one of the things that I heard you say before, and you just kind of alluded to it, is people ask you all the time, they're like, April, what do we do, you know, to connect them with their culture? And I heard you say, connect them to your friends. And then it's like, uh, that's problem number one, <laughs> because some people, they don't have friends that look anything like um, their children. And, and for, um, you know, a family that is going to adopt transracially, I think that is, is an important element. And for me, the best place for that to happen, and this is me, is the context of a community of faith. And, 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 and for us, Life Church Auburn Hills, I had one incident that happened that was amazing. And I'll share this and then I'm going to get into your application piece as we wrap up. Um, I had one incident we were setting up for one of our um, launch team uh, development we were developing just before we launched our church and i um i was putting up speakers and on the on the stand and i saw one of the kids he was walking by and i'm like hey let me just grab him and and, and help him or have him to help me turn on the speaker just involve him in the work and so i picked him up and i'm like there's a button up there i'm holding him there's a button up there you click that button and it turns the speaker on and then he stopped he said, hey, you have hair like me. And it was just such a powerful moment that for, for this young child, this young boy had a moment of identity where he literally touched my hair. And I don't let people touch my fro, but he touched my hair. <laughs> and and he, it was confirmation for him like, man, we have the same hair. So I did. I, I'm like, we do. And I bent down and let him just play in my hair. And it was just a powerful moment that that happened because of who we are as a, a, a community of faith. Yeah. And um, I'll share this one other story. I, I went to another church that I had and there was this young lady after the service, she came up to me and she asked a question. She, I mean, off the blue, she, she looked at me and said, why are you so brown? 
And I stopped and looked like, uh, <laughs> I was actually thinking, I'm like, how do I get out of this? Because she was a black, little black kid. And she asked me, why was I, why was I so blonde, brown? She said, my dad's pink. And her mom's standing there like, oh, what's about to happen here? I had no clue. I'm thinking, let's joke this away and say, oh, I got a tan. And I, I couldn't. In the moment, what came to me was profound. It was God because I couldn't think of it. I said, because I am, that's all I had. I said, because I am. And I did not know how powerful that statement was because when I said, because I am, she did this. She looked at herself and said, I am too. And there was again, this connection, this powerful moment. And when I shared that story with my daughter, my daughter said, oh, I know who you're talking about because she came up to me and asked, are we sisters? She said, you're beautiful, are we sisters? And my, my daughter responded, yes, we're sisters in Christ, you know, um, but it is so important to make those connections for people to see people that look like them. And, um, and so what are some key steps would you recommend and, and as we, you know, wrap up yeah. here, key yeah. steps that you would recommend for families <clears throat> to connect, <clears throat> excuse me, and you alluded to it some, but, but some, what are some other key steps you would encourage families to do yeah. like neighborhood and schooling, yeah. um, various well, things like that, mentors? Yeah. yeah, well, I think there's some foundational things. First that you mentioned the story, which was so important to hear for both stories, the young man touching your hair and then the young lady with, um, you know, remarking about your skin. Then, the, then, then it flips to, are we sisters? I think the first thing that parents really have to get get really good and practiced at and that starts before they even adopt it you know it, it gets down into it when you do adopt and it can can be engaged at any point so don't think if you haven't done some of this work that there isn't time to still do it um get really comfortable talking about the realities of the situation um because what i often find with children is that they don't have the facts um and they, they and it may not because they haven't been they haven't been told, they may not have understood them the way they were told to them, right? Mm -hmm. And you have to be repetitive with children. You have to be age appropriate with children. There are tons of books. There are tons of you know, ways in which we can narrate some of these things back, but parents have to get really, really practiced and good and comfortable and confident at the complexity around adoption and differences of race, right? Mm -hmm. um, because children will, are naturally curious they are naturally interested in themselves and trying to negotiate where they fit into the world. And with the absence of that, or if it's left unsaid, or if we have this narrative that doesn't have enough facts and grounding to it, kids will have a hard time on that path to who am I and, and, and may also as a, as a compound complexity, not feel the opening to ask the questions that they are having and coming up. So if we're not creating some expansive and openness around these complications, uh, around these conversations about the complexity of, of what comes with adoption, um, then we're, we're not really, we're not really setting ourselves up for, um, for success. And that sometimes means you need, need a facilitator, you need uh, someone to come in and, and, and work with you and pray with you and talk to you about how to, how to do that work. And you need to role play it out sometimes all the things. So, mm -hmm. so because that, because that foundational grounding, which happens internally in your family, 
That means with that confidence, you go out into the world, you're seen, you're a very visible family. You'll be ready to rock when someone says, well, where'd you get that? And where are they from? And, and why are they black? And what, you know, all this stuff that happens to transracial families that oftentimes we're like deer in headlights and we go, I don't know, or we, you know, we're not prepared, right? So there's that. That confidence also gives you the strength and the, that practice gives you the strength and the confidence you need to go into school systems and say, present yourselves as a parent to a kid of color who, by the way, you know, as statistics will show you, are overrepresented in, in ex ex expulsions from the classroom and from schools and suspensions as well. So, you know, really working in, for black and brown kids, um, working with a sense of reality and with an owning of your family and multicultural family structure and to be very protective um, of your kid means that you're going to with confidence go into that school and you're going to make your family known you're going to also protect the privacy of your kid you're not going to tell everybody everything because that's not for them right. but you're going to make sure the school knows a few things one that you um, want the data, but you want the data for the school system and you want to know um, what kids get removed from the classroom, what race they are and why. That's all you can have that information. You also want to be able to look at curricula. You yeah. want to look at what is being taught about history. Mm -hmm. You want to look at what's also being taught about science because you know that Punit Square where you talk about genes and, and what mm -hmm. eye color, you know, that goes into what your eye color, what's your eye color, what's your mom or dad's eye color. Well, with multicultural, you know, non-traditional families, you may not be living with a relative that's genetically connected to you. Right. So you, as a parent, so these are the things, but if you're not practiced in being confident about your amazing family that you've created, um, one, your kid's going to smell that, right? And take advantage mm -hmm. of it. Let's just be clear. Yeah. Two, other community experiences, be it the doctor, be it at school, be it with um, another, a, a, an extended family member or friend, you will not have your words. You will be operating from a place of fear or concern or anger or emotion. And you will not be able to emotionally, physically, or psychologically protect your kid. Right. So those are all the things. I mean, those are some some basic things, but it's all about practice and 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 persistence and love, you know, and that's love. Just saying, oh, we love you. We love you transactionally and making sure you got three meals a day on that. That's great. And that's important. But love means I'm going to stretch myself. Mm -hmm. Love means I am going to practice. Yeah. Love means I'm going to read that book. I really don't want to read because it's too hard. But hmm. those are all the things that I find ground families today in the reality of transracial adoption and make them not only they're not only protecting their kid, right? Which is first and foremost, it's, it's about living an expansive life. Uh, That's powerful. I, when you, when you talk about love, cause you know, some people say, well, race doesn't matter and this, that, and the other, I, I heard, you know, several of my friends, they, that's what they thought initially that it didn't matter. But love means, it means sacrifice. <laughs> it means, it means commitment, like you were saying. And, and when we think, of course, of, of, of Jesus, I was going to say you, you're preaching, but I, I wasn't. But you were preaching. <laughs> but love means that. Um, Jesus himself, I mean, came where, where we were and, and, and dwelt among us. He, he, he knew who we were and connected with us. And so when we say we love someone, especially when it relates to transracial, adoption you love that child you have to go where they are and and continue and to learn and uh immerse yourself um i i think on one of your podcasts you talk about you know a child walking in the house and seeing you know black and brown art in in the home just how reaffirming that is 
for a, a person, you know, a, a child of color. So, I mean, there's so many various things we cannot, you know, answer it all right here. But what we want to do is collect uh, anybody that would be interested in um, like a coaching session or anything like that. We want to gauge, we want to find out how many people are interested in this. And then what we're going to do, I'm going to work with uh, April and we'll try to facilitate some type of a session to continue this conversation, uh, to empower you and also to equip you for um, the health and well-being of your family. Uh, as you said, it's a it's such a beautiful thing. It's such an act of love when you extend your family in, in this way. A um, couple of, one, one other question and then we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up. Um, when it relates to families engaging and navigating doing racial tension, as we know right now, there's so much that is going on. And again, we, we're constantly hearing things that I think just continue to separate and divide us. How would you recommend a family, um, a transracial family navigate and engage where, as it relates to like these racial tensions and things yeah. of that nature? Well, again, I go back to parents, right? Um, mm -hmm. First, it starts with parents because there has to be a safe and, um, you know, a place of, of, of engagement and accountability that parents can can go and be, whether that's could be with yourself it could be with trusted friends family members where you can sit and process some of what's happening because so many trans, trans parents of uh, that have adopted transracially especially white parents who adopted black and brown kids a lot of them are are sitting with a lot of a lot of fear a lot of um sadness and that's okay but we've got to translate some of that into action right so you you really do have to be in, in a really um, purposeful flow around understanding. Like if you haven't been doing your work on differences of race, class, and cultural racial identity, your racial identity, it, you know, now there's no room for you not to be doing that. It really will be unsafe for your kids psychologically, emotionally, and maybe even physically if you're not firmly and, you know, authentically rooted in doing that work of understanding why this time is and, and what has led up to this mm -hmm. and how you feel about that and, and what you're willing to do about um, standing up for racial justice. Uh, you know, there's a lot of intricate layers around differences of race, class, and culture that make transracial adoption a thing to begin with right? An overrepresentation yeah. of black and brown kids in foster care. Um, kids, mm -hmm. uh, kids that are black and brown being removed from black and brown families that if it was a white family, those kids would not be removed from that family. There mm -hmm. are so many intricate layers to this, which we don't have time to get into now. Mm -hmm. But if, 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 if anything, you know, look at some of that, you know, in, yeah. in, in your very close personal experience, then I think age appropriately, because remember, you can't, you can't help your kid without being really clear on who you are and how you feel about things. So you really have to start there and then you can pivot to how to help your kid and, and what that means. Um, and, and, and again, it's a team, it's a team effort, right? You may need to bring in all kinds of reinforcements now that you didn't think you needed, but you will soon realize if you haven't already that I can't do this on my own. Mm -hmm. I need to have a squad. I need to have a team of folks that will help in, encourage me, help enlighten me, help me do all the things. And, 
and and then your kid might feel scaffolded and seen and heard um but we i know for sure we can't ignore uh what's happening and that i think that willful ignorance will be very dangerous for your for your kid um and so that that will to do must be there and then you need to figure out how to sharpen your skills um and yeah, we're here to help if that makes sense, if, that, if that's useful. And look, what I say, what's important for families that are, are they're in multicultural families, it's actually important for all people in all families today. This is, this is urgent mm -hmm. in families that have adopted, adopted um, transracially, but in, it, it may be just as urgent on some level for those families who haven't done this work because this is work for you too, even if you are a biologically connected family. Um, this is work all of us need to be doing. Wow, that's good. We have like four minutes remaining. And I, April, I, this is just so amazing. And I really appreciate you um, spending time with us and, and sharing your experience and um, helping, uh, helping us <laughs> in this realm. Um, I, a couple of things that I pulled out was one, not to outsource the work um, uh, that, that, that you need to do, but you still do need partnership. Uh, you need, you need community. You need to be able to connect with people that, that is outside of, um, you know, your, your culture, your ethnic identity to help, um, guide you along. And, and to me, again, it speaks to the value of this community of faith being multicultural, being, um, you know, multi-ethnic. And so that's, that's just amazing. So, Real quick, um, again, uh, Brendan, I thank you. I saw you post on there the um, coaching sessions for anybody that would be interested. Um, again, we don't have a date at this time. We're, we're trying to gauge interest and then we'll do some um, back work with April um, to, uh, and, and to follow up with you all and let you know what's the next step. So in, I guess, closing remarks would be what any, anything that you wanted to share that's on your heart I want you to speak to actually three people. <laughs> One, um, adoptees, because there might be some adoptees that are listening. Um, something that you want to share with parents, and then maybe something for a community that will be supporting um, parents that have, uh, and families rather, that are, are transracially adoptive families. So if you could share on your what's on your heart um, to adoptees, um, parents, and then again, the community. Yeah. So. Um... To the transracially adopted person or the adoptive person out there listening, like I do this for us and for our culture, for you, um, being in, in purposeful conversation in spaces that sometimes are difficult or, you know, are, you know, there's vulnerability to that. Um, it just, it's important that um, I am, uh, you know, really putting, putting us at the center. Uh, of the of these conversations and it hasn't always been that way so it's really important for that to be the case um, and I hold lots of love and and um, you know all the things for uh, my extended family of adoption um, and and you know for parents like man I love you too right <laughs> like um, I say like my work is all centered to the way I do my work is all parents are my parents right mm -hmm. I really that is the spirit in which I do this work because they deserve the love respect and the account the, the holding of accountability that I would put on my my own parents um, so all parents are my parents everybody's on their journey um, 
and for extended family, extended family and community and all the things like um, we need everybody to be engaged. We need everybody engaged in this idea of um, trans transformation versus transaction. We, we can't just be transacting through the things we've got to be transforming. And that means self-reflection. That means self-assessment. That means like being vulnerable. That means making mistakes and figuring it out and resetting. Um, you know, right now, I, I think people would agree that our, our sort of our shared humanity depends on it. And it's transracial adoptive families and multicultural families who are right sitting at the heart of, of this and they have to be first movers. They have to be the ones that are deep in the work um, and be in some ways models for the rest of society to be moving with grace and love and dignity and awareness through the complexities of life uh, because it's all there in our families. Uh, and so that's what I would say. And um, you, you have one question that you, you always, that's part of your broadcast is like, what can adoption teach the world? And so I want to throw that back at you as we close. So what can transracial adoption, and you kind of alluded to that, what, what, do you, what can transracial adoption teach the world in, in, in church or community of faith? Yeah, well, look, I don't like, here's what I would say. Um, I don't like the question. It's my question. I don't like it. And I'll tell you why I don't like it. It's because um, it, it really, it's, it's about real, a deep, a deep commitment to um, working through complexity. That's what I think adopt, transracial adoption can teach the world. Because on the other side of that can be a beautiful, amazing family experience, but it's not without its deep complexity and what adoption and transracial adoption can teach the world is that it's oftentimes both and, and we can mm. live in the both and, and be happy and well and, and um, healthy and all the things. Um, but if we, hmm. if we just completely extract only what's good, yeah. um, we will not be doing justice to the reality of our lives. So I, I think it's living and moving with grace and love and all that through complexity. That's, that's awesome. When you said that the, a tapestry came to mind, um, one side, you know, looks like a, a hot mess, as they would say. And the other side of that is, is there's just beauty. <laughs> and, and that is it, being committed, living through the complexities. Thank you so much, uh, April. Uh, again, for those that are listening, pre please share this with um, anyone you think would benefit from this conversation. Um, and also, if you're interested, uh, Brendan Dry, our associate pastor, he, he posts a link in the uh, feed. If you have any questions, you can um, post them there and we will follow up with you. I really appreciate you, April. I'm gonna pray and um, man, this, is, this was awesome. And again, we just kind of scratched the surface. <laughs> Seriously, just a scratch on uh, the surface, but this was a, uh, a wonderful beginning um, conversation. And so I'm, I, I'm honored and greatly appreciative to, to you, April, for being here with us and sharing today. So I'm going to pray and, um, and then we'll be done. So Father, just thank you so much. I thank you for April. I thank you for her life. Uh, thank you for the grace that you placed in her life. <clears throat> the many challenges and the mountains, the valleys, various things that she's gone through to become the person that she is right now. I want you, I want to thank you um, that she's able to comfort others with the comfort that she has received. 
um, that she's able to, to learn um, and teach, that she's able to teach others what she has learned and experienced. And Father, we pray, um, as we know, as you, humanity is, we're broken, um, but you love us so much, Lord, that you came here to rescue us. And, and we thank you. And we pray that you continue to help us also to be those reconcilers, the people that is committed to reconciliation, people, again, that would be committed to um, being cross-cultural and, and Christ-centered friends. Uh, we ask that you would empower us and continue to empower April and the work that she does. And we love you. Jesus name. Amen. 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 All right. Thank you so much, April. This was amazing. Uh, really appreciate it. You have a great um, day and um, everyone else. God bless you. Thank you for joining us again. Share this uh, feed with your friends, tag someone that you know would um, benefit from this. And again, if you're interested in um, going further and deeper into this conversation, uh, there's a link that has been posted and we would love to hear from you. So go ahead and sign up on that link. Thank you. God bless you. All righty. Bye-bye.